let's, um, let's continue some of our inquiries and exp- explorations. Um, I suppose I want to start off by reiterating a few of the things I've said, and don't be surprised if I kind of keep circling back on many of the things I've said in previous nights, and hopefully looking at them a different angle, extrapolating them in a slightly different way. But one of the things that I think is very clear about the Buddhist path, I mean, the Buddha makes it absolutely clear himself, is that it's a path to awakening. Um, I do, these days, always hesitate to use the word enlightenment. I always tend to think enlightenment, what's occurred at the end of the 18th century, um, with a whole movement in the West. We're talking about awakening, we're talking about waking, waking up. The Buddha himself, the word Buddha is derived from a Sanskrit Pali term, bodhi, which means to wake up. You know? And so the Buddha is an awakened one, he's not an enlightened one. And I think, as I said to you the other night, this is such a challenge to us. It really is, because it's a challenge to overcome all our sleepy, somnambulistic tendencies of walking through life. You know, occasionally we wake up. I often joke about this and say, occasionally we go like this, you know, and one eye pops open <laughs> and it goes back again uh, when we see things. Um, but a lot of the time we're just more working, I suppose, on automatic pilot. We, we really are not there. You know, we're hardly ever present totally. Because often we're spread out. Um, we're certainly spread out into the future planning, worrying, anxious about things that might never happen, projecting into the future. We do this constantly. This is one of our things. And so a huge part of this is fear. Um, Also, we tend to be delving back into the past, actually kind of rooted in the past, going over the sort of midden heap of the past, trying to find out reasons why we are the way we are and sometimes we can get an understanding of why we are the way we are and it still doesn't change anything (laughs) I'm afraid to say that's often the case Um, so what we're talking about is waking up we're waking up into the present moment coming really into this present moment with a full blown awareness of what is going on and what we're doing Now, in this stage, even just waking up to the processes that are going on in the meditative stage can be quite a frightening business. I never say life gets any easier with meditation. It doesn't necessarily get any easier at all, as I think I indicated to you the other night. Those who are looking for a kind of quick, simple trip to calmness, this is not the way, in many senses. Um, As I think John Kabat-Zinn puts it very, very clearly, you know, meditation is not relaxation, just spelt differently. You know, it's not that at all. You know, relaxation comes as a consequence of protracted practice a lot of the time. And certainly when we're delving into Vipassana, when we're delving into meta-meditations and compassion meditations, it will evoke a lot of stuff which is very, very difficult to deal with and can be quite frightening. But the point is, you are in control. That you are in control. You can opt out at any second. You can get up and you can walk out, you can stand up, you can open your eyes, you can do whatever. So in a sense, it is not a loss of control if one is ever frightened about a loss of control in this whole process. So it's very important to remember that, that we're 
actually moving towards waking up. And that waking up in itself is the freedom that I talked about last night. But you really have to desire that freedom. Kind of concluding remarks of the talk I gave last night. You've got to really desire that freedom. You've got to have an idea of the freedom. But this is not a freedom without responsibilities and without commitments. It's a freedom to be engaged wholeheartedly, to be completely there you know, for others often, but not in a way that's, that's holding back, but to be fully there because, in a sense, there is nothing else you can do other than be there. You know, so it's the movement from the idea of freedom into the genuine freedom of being itself. And so that's something, again, I will explore with you. Now, what hinders us? Well, we started off on the path to hindrance last night. And the path to hindrance is multifaceted. And a lot of it is tied to the notion of self. A lot of it is tied to the fears that arise with the notion of self, to the anxieties um, anxiety is a great thing, as we know in the Western world. It's, again, it's, it's the dukkha that runs through much of what goes on in our lives. I don't say it's not there in the East, but we're in the West, and we certainly know it's there in the West as an ever-present reality. But fear is the enormous inhibitor. It stops us from doing so much. It's fear of walking into the unknown. Almost... And it's a sad thing to say. It's almost better the misery we know than the freedom we don't. You know, because we know our miseries. In fact, we're very deeply attached to them in many ways. And we don't want to let them go easily. Um, because they are rooted, they are habits, they are our past. So we fall back into them so easily, no matter how much. And again, this is not a subject for beating ourselves up for condemnation or anything like that. It's just something to realise that what we're doing is actually taking you know, a little step forward and probably two steps back sometimes and we see the enormity of what we're having to give up and what we're giving up is the known. That is what we're giving up. We're moving out into unexplored, uncharted territories. You know, our misery is very well charted. We've probably got extremely well-developed neural pathways for it. Yeah. <laughs> in our brains, from our miseries that we go through. Um, we've worked a lifetime, if not lifetimes, in developing them. So it's not going to be that easy a task to give them up. And I just want to give you a quote, just in a sense. This is from a 20th century poet um, who wrote this prose novel, po- uh, poetic prose novel. Um, somebody called Rilke. Some of you know, might know and even read of Rilke. Um, but it's a lovely passage about fear. Um, and I think it's very indicative. It might not be the fears that you have, but I think it shows the intractability of them. He says, I'm lying in my bed five flights up, and my day, which nothing interrupts, is like a clock face without hands. As something that has been lost for a long time reappears one morning in its old place, safe and sound, almost newer than when it vanished, just as if someone had been taking care of it, So here and there, on my blanket, on my bed, lost feelings out of my childhood lie and are like new. All the lost fears are here again. The fear that a small woolen thread sticking out of the hem of my blanket may be hard, hard and sharp as a needle. The fear that this little button on my nightshirt may be bigger than my head, bigger and heavier. The fear that the breadcrumb which just dropped off my bed may turn into glass and shatter when it hits the floor, and the sickening worry that when it does, everything will be broken forever and ever. The fear that the ragged edge of a letter, 
which was torn open may be something forbidden, which no one ought to see, something indescribably precious, for which no place in the room is safe enough. The fear that if I fell asleep, I might swallow the piece of coal lying in front of the stove. The fear that some number in my head may begin to grow in my brain until there is no room inside it for me. The fear that I might be lying on granite, on grey granite, and the fear that I might start screaming and people will come running to my door and finally force it open, and the fear that I might betray myself and tell everything I dread, and the fear that I might not be able to say anything at all, because everything is unsayable. And the other fears, the fears, the fears, the fears. I prayed to rediscover my childhood, and it has come back, and I feel that it is just as difficult as it used to be, and that growing older has served absolutely no purpose at all. I think it's a very good description. I mean, you can probably alter the fears, but it's a very description often of how we are caught within the entrapment of fears, which are actually very childhood-based, a lot of them. And the fears of moving out into the unknown, they're still there present. In fact, when we talk about our present, it's not a vacuous present, it's a present full of often that past. And what this process of awakening and doing is doing initially is to wake us up to that to wake us up to the what is present. And then comes the emptying process. It's, as I've already described to you, it's starting from a ground base of where we are. The Buddha was a realist. He's not um, an idealist in the sense of projecting ideals onto the world. He's starting from where we are. And the where we are is in our mess actually beginning to appreciate that mess, beginning to look at it, beginning to untangle the tangle that I keep referring to. That is what we are attempting to do. Love is one way of going about it. One One way of approaching that is through the disciplines of loving kindness and compassion. And I say disciplines, you know, meaningfully because it is a discipline. Because the habits... The fears are already there. They're lurking for us to fall back into because they are known. Let us never forget that. They are known. In the mythology of Tibetan Buddhism, often, well, it's not described as a mythology, but they talk about a bardo state, an in-between state, which is a state of choice. It's choosing rebirth. We can either choose things which will take us towards awakening or we'll choose things which in a sense will keep us bound in some way. And this is all described in terms of imageries of deities and all sorts of stuff. But in that, I think there's something very psychologically acute in that we tend to opt for that which is most familiar. In other words, we choose to go back towards the enticingly familiar, not towards the unknown, which in itself can be quite frightening. Um, this is described actually as a wonderful shining bright light that appears in the Bardo and there's these nice enticing images of beautiful goddesses which are actually the known and we go, which one do we go to? Of course we go to the goddesses don't we? we don't go to the bright shining light which is kind of fearful but I think it's very psychologically acute in that that's what we're tending to do we're going backward and back and back towards the known and this connects with what I was saying last night because this is part of our habit patterns this is 
Again, using a quote by Rilke in one of his poems, he says, the habit that moved in and didn't leave. Because that is what has happened to most of us. We have built up habits, they have come in, and they have not departed. We haven't even made friends with them to let them depart in this way. They are just there, and they are working their deed through, pushing us back into areas that we often don't want to be in, but find ourselves in, because in a sense, we've chosen it. Chetana, this word in Pali, means intention. That we're always, you know, the intention is behind the deed. And the intention sometimes is very lax, because it goes back to that known place. This is the workings again. We haven't got very far from what I was talking about last night. This is the workings of sanskaras. This is the workings of those habit karmic formations, which will continue to wreak their havoc as long as they remained unexamined. There is a vast difference, in a way, between Buddhist practice and psychoanalysis, although there are similarities as well in psychoanalytic practice in general. Buddhist thought intends to empty out the contents of your whole unconscious. Unlike psychoanalytic theories, which, well, one takes Freud as an example and all the others that arose out of the Freudian movement, the others... You know, the Freudian movement and the others tend to want to dabble around on the peripheries, not empty out the contents of the unconscious. You know, so things will always remain unconscious. Freud was very dubious about ever getting into the really deep levels of the unconscious, and actually thought it was positively deleterious uh, to civilization if one started getting into those areas. Now, unlike that, Buddhism says we have to, in a sense, become familiar. Anything which is unconscious has to become conscious. Even those unconscious intentions, those unconscious intentions which steer us back to ways of being which we do find unsatisfactory. Probably the best translation of dukkha, but still not a very good one. That things are just unsatisfactory for us. It's that feeling, as I've already mentioned over a number of nights, of the world not giving you what you want. Now, we can opt for love, compassion, insight. But that is a harder path than the path of what I call ersatz or pseudo-love, and ersatz and pseudo-compassion, and so on and so forth, which actually goes by a very easy name. It's called sentimentalism. Because often love and compassion um, is very sentimentalized. It's a nice, gooey feeling that comes over one. I, again, I was brought very face-to-face in my very early years in Buddhism. When I first visited a Tibetan monastery in India, and I'd gone round this monastery and um, asked what everything was, and the monks were very, very friendly and very open about it. And there are all these beautiful tankas, and I'm sure you're familiar. There's actually one outside um, in the little vestibule, the little place where the notice boards are. But tankas are kind of silk paintings, or paintings which are hung on silk and they're usually of deities. And you get these nice, cuddly-looking deities, you know, um, all beautifully dressed in silk robes and looking gorgeous. I mean, they have this um, young female deity called Tara who's only ever 16 in the depictions. 
and, and they have these beautiful male deities as well and I went up to one of the monks and said oh, what are they and he said oh they are depictions of wisdom and compassion and particularly this one he said this beautiful soft looking figure is compassion and there's Tara she's loving kindness and I could see that all oh, very gentle and I went up and I kind of looked at these other black looking things that were hanging on the wall um, which actually had demons on them basically um, there's this character with flames coming out of his back um, holding a skull which is brimming with blood and overflowing with a garland of severed necks severed heads round his um, neck um, plus a tiger skin round his waist and trampling on corpses and all various other ghastly bits of accoutrements that he had on and I said to him and what's that? <laughs> and this is my very early days, I didn't know anything. And he said, that's compassion. Wow. Oh. <laughs> well, this is the opposite from gooey compassion. <laughs> this was, and he went on later to describe, and in my years in training, that I began to see very clearly that there are two aspects. There is a soft side to compassion, and there's a soft side to loving kindness, but there is this very, very hard, dynamic side. Equally so with insight, too. You get the nice soft figure called Manjushri, who's a depiction of insight or wisdom, as it's usually called. And then you have this you know, 19-headed character with 37 arms and all the rest of it, again, with skull cups. And, and he is wisdom, too, and he is insight and understanding. And it makes you see that actually there are models that we usually operate within. And in fact, our habits, again, coming back to our sankharas, our habits that we operate on in thinking about love and compassion and empathy are very kind of romanticized. They're very sentimentalized a lot of the time. And it always struck me a particular quote by Oscar Wilde. I don't know if any of you know this. It's actually from a, a piece that he wrote when he came out of jail, called, or actually in jail started in jail, it was published when he came out, called De, De Profundus. And in it, he said, the sentimentalist is the person who wants the luxury of an emotion without paying for it. <laughs> I thought that's a very powerful statement. In other words, actually to have that genuine emotion, and that is what it is, there is no doubt about it. Compassion and love and empathy are extremely strong emotions. And in fact, in Buddhist psychology, they're listed under the wholesome states of mind, the wholesome emotions that one can develop against the list of the unwholesome emotions. So in other words, sentimentalism only scratches the surface. It's not the real thing. Not the real thing at all. It's, in a sense, easily satisfied. Often the love that we bring to relationships as well is not the real thing it's often sentimentalised and of course in the West we have a great history of the romantic novel, the romantic lyric, the poem and everything else and some of it gives us very good strong images about what it should be about and the real thing actually gets lost in the whole process and so what we're doing when we're looking at habits particularly in relation to the theme of this week which is the development of kindness, the development of empathy, the development of compassion, then we really have to look closely at what, in a sense, are those deep unconscious models that we carry around with us of what we think love is. You know? Often it is 
sentimental. Often it is simply erotic love. It is not the love that the Buddha is talking about. This love which is an absolute in some senses. Let's go back because it's, it's a spectrum of terms. The metta practice, the anukampa practice, and the karuna practice, metta, loving-kindness, and kampa, the empathy, although this is the bridging area. This is, remember, the crying out at the crying out of another. To really be so resonant with another. You know, that resonance of being that cannot do anything but attempt to help, to be with another totally. These are the models, really, of love that the Buddha is talking about. It's love as a totality of being which gives rise to action, not just a nice thought, a nice kind of squishy feeling that one might have in your head or even in your body. It's not that at all. It's something which is dynamic and it's active. And so what we have in terms of sentimentalized love and sentimentalized compassion, again, are just products of our conditioning, our upbringing, the things we've been exposed to, and they are so easily to fall, so easy to fall into, and they so easily go wrong. Because the kind of models of love that we often have are actually about me. <laughs> you know, they're actually about me. All the models of love are pointing to me, and want me at its centre. You know, and I'm kind of joking about this, but in a way it's quite serious because actually that's where it's emanating from. It's emanating from a fundamental narcissism. You know, I'm actually in love with me and what I want to see in the other is something that reflects me. You know, I want you to be my little mirror, my little pool of water. And you know, I'm sorry about this. <laughs> but it's the only way I can describe it. It's, it's in a sense we... we want the other to mirror us very strongly um, to get a sense of identity. Human beings, for the most part, um, and again, generalisation, bear in mind these are all generalisations, so please apply them or discount them where you think fit. But human beings in general are kind of identity-seeking creatures. We want to seek identities. We want to become something. We're frightened at not being anything. At all. That's one of the greatest worries. In fact, so much so, it's one of the first things we ask somebody, isn't it? What do you do? And they kind of try and pigeonhole them. Um, and it's terribly worrying when somebody says, well, actually, I don't really do that much. You know? So how do you place them? Where do you put them in that? Uh, and we actually create, uh, create identities through things like professions, through a place, having a job, doing this, being this. These are all roles, they're all roles and nothing else. And as we all know, roles get stripped away from us. They're not fundamental to our being. They're just something we, we possess for a certain period of time and then they're stripped away from us. So don't get too attached to them. You know, whatever it is, whatever your role is, you know, be it I don't know, in a professional role or mother or father or anything like that, in a sense, it's progressively taken away from you over a period of time. So nothing is actually remaining the same. But we're searching, we're desperately clinging for that identity. And there's no better searching for identity than in the eyes of another. Yeah. Yeah. We want to be confirmed in our being in the eyes of another. And it's terribly worrying when we're not. 
However, what we're actually doing is we're engaging, really, very fundamentally in the myth of Narcissus. You know the myth of Narcissus? Narcissus is the, the beautiful young knight in the medieval legends. It's much older than that, but it's, it came to four, really came to the forefront in the medieval period. He's the medieval knight who looks into the pool, into this lovely, still, clear pool. And what does he see? He sees this beautiful image reflected back of himself and then falls in and drowns. Yeah. And I think that's a wonderful myth for what actually is happening to a lot of us, not all, and to varying degrees, but a lot of us all the time, which is we're drowning in ourselves. We're actually drowning in ourselves. The self is something which obfuscates our vision of anybody else. So actually when I see the other, I don't really see the other, I see myself. And when that other doesn't reflect back what I want to see, I fall out of love. And then it turns into something nasty. And again, bear in mind I'm making generalisations. I really want to keep emphasising that. So do apply it um, and, and think about it because it might not fit your experience and it's your experience that counts. But just through my observation, I see this is why so often so-called deeply held love relationships turn into absolute hatred, absolute aversion at the drop of a hat. And it's because that person has no longer continued to reflect back to me what I want to see. Now, that is not love at all. It might be eros, there's no doubt about that. Um, One can accept that. It's eros, it's erotic love, it might be sexual love, but it's not the love that the Buddha talks about, which is much, much more unconditional. It's not conditional upon getting the right reflection back at all. And so, again, when thinking about where I started from this evening, you take a chance. If you move out into offering unconditional love, then you're taking a chance. You're taking a risk. You're not falling back into the familiar. The familiar is getting the reflection back for however long it lasts. Um, Also, this kind of love that I'm talking about, what I call the ersatz love, that somehow is sentimentalised, idealised, romanticised, all the stuff of the popular romantic fiction and all that, often it doesn't take account of change either. That actually, and again I mentioned this very briefly the other night, that, that human beings are always changing. You and I will continue to change right up until our deaths. We are always changing. We will not remain the same. Yeah. Yet, you get couples who've been together for long periods of time who wake up one morning and one says to the other, you've changed. <laughs> <laughs> and they could have been together 30 years. No. And they might not have noticed it because in a sense what they've got freeze-framed in their mind is the person they fell in love with at a particular time. In other words, that has fossilised the relationship. For a real relationship to work, it has to be dynamic. It has to be movement. It has to be change. And I used a word, I think, on the very first evening, which I said I would return to. I think Faith was reminding me to return to it. I was going to remind me. And this word is negotiation. 
You know, that really any relationship is a process of negotiated change for it to live and to work and to remain dynamic and for the feelings of love and kindness to remain genuine. Without that, without that process in the sense of realistically seeing the change, there can only be a kind of loss of that original vision that you had. Yeah. And so often we find this in breakdown. I mean, I hear, okay, I'm a terrible eavesdropper when I'm on buses and things like that, hearing conversations and on trains and that. And often what strikes me is, when I listen to conversations, particularly between long-term married couples, they sound like they're in a Harold Pinter play. You know, how Harold Pinter plays when nobody ever really speaks to each other. <laughs> you know, there's lots of comments directed at the other, but nothing's actually replied to. There's nothing actually taken on board at all. Yeah, it really is kind of almost stuff of Monty Python jokes. Yeah? You know, I feel terrible today. Yeah, just look at my shoes. <laughs> that sort of stuff. <laughs> you know, when nobody actually ever replies to anything. And really that's what's going on. And again, very forceful. I've often said this in this room because it did strike me so much about relationships is how we don't listen to each other. There is no space for the other to manifest because we're so full of ourselves. Yeah. And this was a this was a cartoon strip that I saw, and it was a wonderful cartoon strip, and I, you know, many of you have heard me say this before, but it was wonderful because they had a couple sitting over, obviously a dinner table, and there was the candle in the middle and the bottle of wine and everything else, and, and there was lots and lots of squares, you know, with little bubbles above each of the, well, above one of the heads, actually. There's the man who's leaning across the table, talking it to the woman and going, me, me. In each of the little bubbles, and there was about 12 of these bubbles, and every one had me written into it. And obviously, at some point, he'd finished talking, because he leans back in the chair, and a little cartoon has him leaning back in the chair, and she leans across the table, and a little bubble appears above her head and goes, me. And he goes, (laughs) (laughs) And I thought, that is so indicative of so much, and it doesn't have to be that way. This is inauthentic being with others. It doesn't matter. I mean, this was a heterosexual relationship, but it doesn't matter who you're with. In fact, my little cartoon character was so full of himself, there was no room for another. This is total narcissism. There was no room for another. There's not even kind of a little chink to prise their way in to it. And really what we're trying to do in the development of kindness and compassion is develop an openness really I would describe it as this openness which allows the other to be allows the other to manifest without that genuine manifestation of the other everything is control everything is about me from the way you reflect me back at me to what you do for me and are you going to continue to do it because if not something might have to change Um, I'm kind of joking about this again but I hope I'm making serious points through the the humour of this because it's about control if we want to remain fully in control and not open ourselves up and this is a wonderful description that's often used in religious thought in general not just in Buddhism but the idea of the opening of the heart opening the heart to let others enter. Yeah. This is 
opening and clearing a space for the other to be, then that can be actually not just the human other, but the non-human other as well. And Buddhism always makes that point. It's not just about human beings, it's not anthropocentric in that way. It's about letting the world manifest in one's heart. Letting ourselves be open to that world. So when we're in the walking meditation, sometimes I say, it can be very regimented, kind of trotting up and down with a very serious grim look on our faces, as I indicated the other day. It doesn't have to be like that. It can be opening up to the joyousness of the feel of the wind on the skin, the sound of the birds, the rustle of the leaves and the trees, opening ourselves up to it. We don't want to be closing ourselves down, not closing ourselves down. I get an image when I see this image of closure, when we close, kind of like this, kind of wrapped into ourselves, not opened up to the world, not opened up to the other, because there is no space when I'm so full of myself. And what the Buddha tries to do in his, you know, in his way is try to open us to this vision of the self not as a thing that we're turned into. We, in fact, solidify ourselves. We turn ourselves into things. We turn ourselves into objects. Um, this is actually a reflection that Jean-Paul Sartre, the, the great French thinker and dramatist and philosopher, had. You know, that he said that human beings were terrified of freedom were always trying to turn themselves into things. Tables and chairs and all the stuff that we have a solidity to them. Human beings have no solidity in a way. And we're frightened and scared of having that kind of amorphousness, that lack of solidity about us, that we want to make ourselves into something. So therefore we become a teacher. <laughs> yeah? I am now a teacher and I play the role of being a teacher. You know? But we're not that. You know, that's just a role, which is why I say, always say... We can have many, many roles. You know, I always think of Greek theatre you know, with the different masks coming on. We can have these roles, but they're passing. Don't believe in any of them. Don't believe in any of them, because none of them are serious. They might have responsibility, and it's a responsibility, it's serious, not the role itself. The role is something passing. It's something fleeting. It's something we're attempting to stabilise ourselves with, create a sense of identity with, because of this fear. The sphere of not being something. And particularly in the Western world, it is so strong. It's now infected the Eastern world in many ways. You have got to be a something. You have got to have proven yourself. You have got to have become successful. That might become successful in relationships or successful in business or successful in this and successful in that. And it's become yet another pressure on us to become a something. It's one in a way that we should look at realistically and see... And again, in our day-to-day activities, where we fall under the sway of that pressure to become something. And to do the opposite, become nothing. Because actually, that's what we are. No thing at all. Now the Buddha, I'm going to spend a few minutes just going through this notion of what the Buddha thought ourselves were, was... The one thing he's trying to say, and the one thing I want to make clear is, please, please don't ever hear this translation of what's called anatta in Pali as being no self. I always get this impression here when people say to me, well, the Buddha teaches no self, that I suddenly had one and then it's gone. (laughs) You know, I've got this self-shaped hole somewhere in me. Um, It's not like that at all. 
You know, there's no self-shaped hole. There was never one in any, any way. There was not a fixed self. This is what the Buddha is arguing against. There is not a fixed notion of a self. Everybody in India and in Greece at the same period of time were trying to talk about what the essence of things were. They were always trying to do that. They had this question. They went around asking questions about what something is. And the what something is question always gives us an answer in terms of something stable, something essential. You know, so in other words, if you ask the question about what a human being really is, well, you might come down to something like a soul or a real self which doesn't change. Um, but that wasn't the Buddha's question at all. It wasn't the Buddha's question in the slightest. He wanted to know how things were. His questions were how was something, not what is something. How is it? So how does it manifest? How does this thing that we call self, which we feel so strongly, you know, let's none of us underestimate that. You know, in these moments of irritability, in these moments of anger, you will feel that sense of self arising extremely strongly, and we will hold to it so much so that we will still be feeling resentments years on, you know, because it was against me yeah, that this was done. And, and all I'm trying to indicate to you is, is the strength of that notion, the strength that we think there is something solid there that has been affronted, that has been challenged or whatever you know, in our lives. And the Buddha is trying to explode that mythology. He takes the idea of something unitary and shows it's composed. That's all he's doing. It's very simple. He's saying, well, what is this functioning? What is it? Well... He's not saying what is it in, in the sense of what is the essence of it, but actually the how is it. How does it move? How does it function? How does it manifest? In doing so, he gives a very brief description. It's the most simple description that is of the notion of the self in Buddhist thought. It's known as the five khandhas or skandhas. The five aggregates. Yeah. And these are very simply the aggregate of form, the aggregate of feeling, the aggregate of discrimination, the aggregate, one we've come across, because I've been talking about it for the last two nights, the aggregate of karmic formations and the aggregate of consciousness. And what he attempts to show is that each of those five things are not self. However, the notion of a self is, in a sense, projected on to the functioning of these five different processes because they are actually five different processes so the process of form actually is not that different from mental functioning because it's about physicality and how we sense our physicality solidity, fluidity, temperature and everything else in other words how do we embody this body that's what it's about how do we embody where we sense bits of it are solid we sense bits of it are fluid and on a day like today, you sense bits of it are hot, you know, and so on and so forth. And so it's really dealing with the processes. And bear in mind, if the temperature plummets tomorrow, you might feel cold, not hot. You know, certain bits don't remain solid. <laughs> you know, other bits, you know, the fluidities, slow down. They get congealed, and so on and so forth. You know, so it's changing, in other words. And one of the things I've spent most of us would not want to do, um, particularly when we look in the mirror, is say, this is myself. 
Because <laughs> you're onto a bit of a loser if you think that's yourself, in looking for something unchanging, because that physical form is going to change. You know, we look at our childhood photographs often and think, well, how can that be me? <laughs> well, I certainly do, I know about anybody else. How can that be me, getting to this position now? You know, and so it's going to continue to change all the way through to death. So kind of buying into the idea of the physical form as being a something um, which doesn't change and being yourself, as I don't expect any of you have bought into that idea of being a self, you're on to a loser, basically. And then there's feelings. You know, feelings. This covers the whole range of your feelings, by the way. Um, you like something, you dislike something, and you neither like nor dislike it. That's it. There's nothing else. In other words, you <laughs> have pleasant sensations and you like it, you have unpleasant sensations and you dislike it, and you have neither. And you can observe all of those in some kinds of vipassana meditation. You can scan the body and you can see nice pleasant sensations which will suddenly change and become unpleasant ones. And then they'll go into neither pleasant or unpleasant. And they'll come back with a vengeance and be unpleasant again to you. And, that. and so they're changing all the time. And even our so-called tastes, which are actually feelings, a lot of them, based on, oh, I like the taste, the touch of that. You know, touch it for four hours and you won't. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It won't remain the same. Yeah. So... Even that, even our feelings are not remaining the same. This is usually much to the annoyance of others, by the way. You know, I thought you liked that. No, I don't. <laughs> Again, usually accounting for a breakdown in relationship too. Because <laughs> they've freeze-framed you with your likes and your dislikes. You know, don't change them, for heaven's sake. Um, so our feelings don't remain the same. So buying into the idea of feelings as being yourself, again, you're on to a bit of a loser there. Then there are discriminations. Discriminations. Well, what discrimination? It's usually translated, by the way, if you look at these in the, in the books, generally translated as perception, but it's not very accurate. Uh, sanya in Pali, which is actually the Pali term, means everything to do with discrimination, which includes perceptual processes. Yeah. So discrimination is how we discriminate and see the things around you. Yeah. In other words, I discriminate you from you and you from you and how I discriminate the wall from the ceiling, and the, and, you know, the various trees in the wood, and things like that. You know, discrimination is a process, in other words, of learning. And we start off from very small discrimination, probably as a baby, um, probably not a lot of difference between mum and food. You know, you know, those are probably the most basic descriptions, and hopefully it gets a bit wider as we grow older. <laughs> Sometimes I think not. <laughs> But hopefully it gets a little bit wider as we grow up and, and, and what we actually see, just being serious about it, what we actually see is, is a widening of discrimination. Memory is included in this, by the way. Memory is in sanya, in discrimination, and so much of who we think we are is based on memory. And um, you know, our sense of self is often dependent on that memory. And so when you get things like chronic degenerative brain diseases, such as Alzheimer's, People literally don't know who they are because they've lost their memories about who they are. You know, they can't discriminate who they are. They have no fun. And if you think about that, so much of what we think of as ourself is based on what we can remember you know, about our past. I mean, I can remember stuff from my very early childhood. Sometimes I can't remember what I did last week, but I can remember stuff from my early childhood. You know. um, and so actually our memory is extremely selective. 
what we can remember about our lives. But it's in a sense, that sense of continuity through memory that we get, which posits us as a self. But it's, again, it's not solid, and it's very, very arbitrary almost. Sometimes memories, as you know, Marcel Proust pointed out, sometimes memory is included in things like our perceptions, you know, like the smell of something, or in his case, it was the taste of the Madeleine cake dipped in tea. You know, being able to recall all sorts of things about his childhood and everything else. Um, for me, I mean, I always get this, whenever he had smelled juniper smoke, I'm right back there in India, because they often use juniper wood to build the fires in India in the early morning to make the food. Um, and that's that smell that takes you right back. But what I'm trying to point out to you is memory is extremely selective, what we can remember. And sometimes it's not the filing system, it's actually sensory memory too. You know, a lot of our memory is embodied in involuntary sensory memory. But it includes also language. You know, we remember things by labelling them through language, actually discriminating. I, you know, I discriminate the various trees in the wood by applying a bit of language to it. You know, it comes along with the, the label, and we stick it to it. You know, and, and actually, that's the way it's described. That This process of sanya is the marking of, ob- of an object for recognition. Yeah, that's what we do. What's the chief way of marking an object? Well, through language. And we build that up through, you know, from childhood onwards, and perhaps eventually as we get older, we start to lose it as well. You know, our memories start to go. So we get this process of widening our discrimination from childhood, perhaps getting to a point and it starts to close down again. Hopefully not too far but it does start to close down again. You know, as brain cells die off and all the rest of it. So, who are you? Are you your Sanya? Well, the answer obviously is no, you're not, because it's changing. It's a changing phenomenon. It's unstable. I could have a brain injury, and that will completely change my ideas of who and what I am. You know? um, so, I'm just moving on very rapidly. I'm aware time is running out. Then there is the sanskaras. I won't bore you by going on about the sanskaras again. You, obviously, hopefully you've got an impression embedded in you by now of what the sanskaras are. They are everything that we're doing, acting, thinking, speaking, are forming our lives through. You know, this is what the sanskaras are. We either perform our sanskaras wholesomely or we perform them unwholesomely. If we perform them unwholesomely, then we get the consequences. If we perform them wholesomely, we also get the consequences of them. So it's a consequential idea that we are formed and forming. Actually, sanskaras, that's probably the best way of translated it, translating it, formed and forming. Um, sankata, sankara, it's a complex. Then finally, there is consciousness, which we again touched on last night, and consciousness is not a thing. What does consciousness have as its object? Well, again, if I listed them, lined them all up, all of the above. And so it's therefore changing. It's unstable. Consciousness is changing according to the quality of the sanskaras, according to the discriminations, according to the feelings, and of course according to form as well. So in a sense we are conscious of all of these things going on simultaneously, as well as world and everything else that's impinging on us. So consciousness is unstable, and the real essence of this is all that is unstable, so it is not self. Because the self that we often search for is often for the stable idea of a self. 
Now, the idea when we kind of ask that question, which I'm sure most of us have had at some point in our lives, who am I really? You know? And that kind of almost sets it up for an answer, doesn't it? Of, well, it's got to be this thing. You know, who am I really? And what the Buddha is really trying to say is, you're trying to pin yourself down. You're trying to pin yourself down. And if you really are that thing, and whatever that thing is, you know, be it intrinsically good or intrinsically bad, well, you've got no possibility of changing it if that's what you really are. What you really are, according to the Buddha, is nothing. You're not anything at all. That doesn't mean you don't exist, but you're not thing-like in possessing unchanging qualities. Now that's the good news. Come on, this is the good news. <laughs> you know, it's the good news because it means that anybody can change. None of us, and I really make this point because it's, it's so strong in Buddhist traditions, that nobody is beyond using almost Christian term, redemption. Nobody is beyond redemption because everybody can change from those negative, unwholesome qualities we often exhibit, exhibit in our daily lives, in our thought processes, in our speech. We can change them to be wholesome processes. If there was an unchanging aspect to that unwholesomeness, then it would be impossible to do that. This is why Buddhist cultures are replete with stories about criminality and people who have been criminals who have changed and actually gained, according to the stories, awakening. I mean, they're wonderfully moralistic stories, but I think the kind of moral behind the tales are is that everybody can... If these people can do it, you can do it. Uh, And you can really begin to change. So even in our deeply depressive moments about our kind of fixity and stuckness and that, if you can just bring to mind this idea that I'm no thing, therefore change is always possible within me, that I can actually take on other qualities, that I can develop them, I can train myself in them, then I think it's a marvellous way of actually overcoming that kind of depressive stuckness that we can all at some time or another feel you know, strongly or, or less strongly. You know, I'm sure we've all been there at some point in time, feeling, you know, this is an uphill struggle. I feel like Sisyphus, you know, kind of pushing the boulder up the hill. And we don't have to feel like that. Um, by bringing to mind this idea that we are not depression, we are not, you know, any other particular kind of quality of mind that we you know, can be given a diagnosis of, we're not that. We're something far more. That might be a peripheral quality, and given that you could change the overall other stuff, that might change as well. So it's what I'm saying to you, this is always this idea of a not-self, is the hopeful message behind it. If there was a self, an unchanging entity, which actually in India they spoke a lot of at that time, it's very much polemical against the Indian tradition, what the Buddha is speaking about, then it would be impossible to change. It would be impossible to change at all. And the Buddha is giving everybody hope across the spectrum, from the criminal to the king. He's saying you can all change, and you can all live this life, which he actually calls the holy life. And this holy life actually is just the ethical life. Nothing other. And so what we get is an image of somebody walking around northern India, very, in a sense, human, but not because in a sense he's gone beyond the human in terms of our humanness, all too humanness, and is talking and speaking and acting out of 
purely wholesome qualities. You know, being them rather than just thinking them. And that is his, in a sense, message. And that is why this path of awakening is what he's talking about. It's a path to waking ourselves up to the fact that we too can emulate that. So in a sense, when you see images like this behind me of the Buddha, those are actually something in the tradition called Buddha Anasati, Buddha Anasati which actually is remembrance of the qualities that you can develop, the qualities of the Buddha, that you too can develop them. I'll rest my case there. <laughs> Okay, well, we have a little bit of time for some questions, if anybody got any, or comments. There don't have to be questions, by the way. It can be comments, it can be disagreements, it can be anything, you know, you throw it up. <laughs> yeah. Um, in the... Um, in, in, the re- in the reflections that we're doing, I'm noticing, I think what they call shenpa, the, I'm, I'm, I've had to reduce to such simple terms... The, uh, the reflections because I'm so pulled away in thoughts and stories and, and I- illusions that I almost forget what I'm trying to say so I've had to say um, may I be peaceful and easy mm-hmm. because that's about as far as I can remember because the, 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 the nattering of thought is, is pulling so hard mm-hmm. and I, I think of this as the, the word that seems to come to mind is shenpa, the, the, the stickiness mm. of the the kind of mental formations mm. which are which which are happening. Mm. And I remember something that the Buddhist said that uh, sometimes to know what's not true is the closest we can get to the truth. And so I have this strong sense that this chorus swirling around me as I'm trying to do this simple practice of metta mm-hmm. is not me. Mm-hmm. And, and yet if I even cast an eye towards the content and the feeling of the stories that are swirling around me, that's everything that I think that I am. Yeah, that's often the case. In fact, what you're doing, and this is true of most meditative procedures, but particularly true of anything which has, in a sense, the samatha ring to it. Traditionally, and I might say this, I haven't said this before to the group, I think I might have said it to some individuals, but, I mean, traditionally that metta practice, I don't particularly agree with this, but metta practice is seen as a samatha practice. It's seen as a concentration practice, ultimately. And in any concentration practice, and I'm just holding with the traditional interpretation for a moment, with any concentration practice, in a sense, you're going to get all that stuff thrown up because that's what it's doing. In fact, that's the reason why you do it. You hold an object, be it the phrases or be it the breath, and you get this wonderful, what I call display, kind of the soap opera of your own mind, you know, going on, you know, all the stories that are coming up and that, and you get a chance to look at it but not actually grasp after it. And that's the really important thing. And that familiarization process, I think, is no different from Vipassana, where you're actually beginning to see, to note what is there. But the difference is you're returning here to an object. You're returning to the breath or to a phrase or the phrases or whatever. So it's highlighting it. It's actually almost deliberately provoking it. Yeah. If I say concentrate on that, you know, and give you the object, well, chances are the mind doesn't want to do it, and that's in a sense what we're doing. We're actually deliberately provoking the mind, goading it to produce stuff. Yeah, you know, <laughs> and 
it is it is kind of a bit like you know kind of you you poke the cow or the horse and it runs all over the place and and that's what we're doing and but hopefully after a while it starts to calm down yeah it starts to lose the impetus the more you begin to be able to bring yourself back the more times you do it the slower and slower it gets until it starts to be instead of this raging horse dashing around it starts to be one that's kind of quite gentle quite calm and you can go up and stroke it a bit occasionally and so you don't have to be taken into it at all I think it's a very very valuable process a very very valuable process of seeing that which is why I'm always saying and as I said last night you know, please don't see when you have loads of thoughts and loads of images and the stuff as you say your life swirling around in the stories and that as being bad meditation it's not you know, this, is, this is all that you need to see you need to see it. You need often, sometimes, just come face to face with the constructive narratives that we've built up for ourselves over the years. And we've got an awful lot of them. You know, <laughs> you know, any situation you come in, you've always got a good excuse, which actually is a narrative for the way you are. You know, often we don't realise them until we've said them, and by that time it's often too late. You know, this is a way of getting to familiarise yourself with some of that going on. I always say this is kind of really becoming familiar with your friends. You know, and these days, I often, you know, kind of when I'm doing this, I go, oh, God, how, how are you today? <laughs> As the old story comes up yet again. <laughs> you know, the old anxiety or whatever it is. Because it is, it is. It's just kind of there. Yeah. Might not ever go away. Who cares? You know, as long as I'm not being driven by it any longer. Yeah, that's the main point. As long as you're not being driven by it. In our unreflective state, in the state of not knowing, in other words, that it's there, we get driven by it. And we just find ourselves in the behaviour, saying, doing, whatever it is. And so I'd actually say it's a really valuable thing to be doing. That was a long answer to a short question. (laughs) But I tend to do that. (laughs) Just shut me up. (laughs) Anybody else? Yeah. Would you not think that soap opera that has developed in our consciousness over thousands of years... Is necessary for our survival. If I don't plan for next week and compare the week that's gone by, mm. it must have developed within us. Yeah, it does, but you know, anything. You know, when we can say that something was necessary for our survival and was evolutionary, that might have been the case when we were hunter gatherers a lot of the time, you know, to, to remember certain you know, places where you could find food and where it wasn't and to plan ahead for moving to the next pasture and things like that. And often I think what we're left with is the residue of things that were evolutionarily useful. But now in this kind of world, civilised world of you know, the 21st century, some of them are simply not useful any longer. And kind of fight and flight mechanism, you know, sometimes is still useful, but in most cases not. And a lot of the psychological conditions that we have are very primitive. They're very, very primitive, very crude. And as as you rightly say, I think they probably did have an evolutionary side to them which was useful. Now, in terms of the one you actually directly mentioned, planning, yeah, it's useful to plan. It's useful to do it. But do you have to be planning all the time? That's really what we're saying in terms of the meditative tradition. Yes, do planning when planning is necessary. Imply your mind to the planning process. But when you're doing the washing up, do you have to be planning? You know, when you're doing something else, do you have to be planning? In other words, a lot of the time we're absent because we are projecting. 
Now, some of that is necessary. You, to, all you need to get here, you probably have to plan your journeys, catch the right trains, catch the right buses, the flights, or whatever to get here at the right time. But when you're here, you don't have to plan. You don't have to do any more planning. You can just be here. But that's actually not what the mind does, because it's actually habituated to the planning process. Yeah, so we're projecting into the future. What if? What if? What if? Yeah. And what I'm saying is that we can let that go for vast portions of our life. Do the planning when the planning is necessary, or whatever the, you know, the, the, the past thinking or the future thinking is. But a lot of the time, we can actually be here. We can be witness to what's going on. We can actually be fully present uh, in this life. And that's not a vacuous present. It's a present which is full of everything. Yeah. <laughs> so that's kind of my response to, to that. That's right, and I think it's a very good phrase. That's actually what actually happens. Things leak into other things, and they kind of despoil the whole business of life because one bit's leaking into another. Yeah, it's a puddle. Yeah, it's a very good, very good analogy. Yeah, that's exactly what happens. I think it's a very good strategy if you can do it that way, in, that, in a kind of disciplined way, to actually plan when you need to plan. Um, sometimes, of course, things arise when you need to deal with contingencies arise that you have to deal with, um, but for the most part. If you think about it, a lot of our lives are fairly, fairly the same, actually, aren't they? Yeah. Yeah, and that doesn't have to be boring, because actually if you can genuinely inhabit the sameness, you'll find a lot of difference. Yeah. But that's a very good strategy. Yeah. Well, one of the, one of the most forward-thinking... Aspects and is actually outside of the planning aspect, but in a way is also futural. Is anxiety? Anxiety is entirely futural. It's about the what may never arrive. Yeah, but yeah, it's, it has the big what if to it. Yeah. And if we can start to see, in a sense, the vacuousness of that, yeah, the vacuity behind it, yeah. Yeah, that when we live our lives in the present, almost like some animals, you know, living in the present. There is no fear. Fear is always attached to something future. And apart from the kind of, I see the bus bearing down on me. (laughs) I'm standing in the road. I'm at Squadra, a good fear. But most of our fear is not like that, is it? It's usually fear of what if happens, or what if happens, and we're projecting into the future. And it's really dragging us away and taking us away out of this moment. If we can learn to inhabit this moment, then there is no fear in this moment. And fear is attached to a self which is projected into the future as well. Perhaps I'll touch on that tomorrow night and talk about that a little bit further. Yeah? Um, I just noticed in the process of thinking of benefactors today, I sort of came over a sense of gratitude, a lot of gratitude came up. 
And I've noticed before that when I do a gratitude meditation, I tend to think of very specific things. Now, I'm grateful for the person who picked the, 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 the black currants for breakfast, or mm-hmm. grateful for the person who picked the lemon balm for tea. Yeah. They're always quite specific things, and yet the meta meditation feels kind of broader, you know, what may be peaceful. Mm. I wouldn't entire, personally entirely compartmentalise that. I think, you know, obviously it's your experience, so you know, I wouldn't want to disagree with it. But I mean, in, in general, gratitude can also be for the vastness of things. You know, um, in certain traditions in Buddhism, <clears throat> gratitude is a primary practice. Um, Shin Buddhism, for example, Japanese Shin Buddhism where one is simply grateful for what one has. You know, and it's the antidote to moaning, basically. <laughs> you, know, you, you sit and you actually appreciate what you have got because there are so many who haven't got. You know, we appreciate what we have got. And this actually then carries forth in action because you do things for others you know, out of that sense of gratitude. Um, but yes, I think meta does have a very broad aspect to it. And of course, the way the meta meditation goes is it does broaden it out anyway into the whole world. That may all beings feel this way. You know, may all beings be full of loving kindness. May all beings be you know X and X and X, as the phrases that we've been going through. It is a natural broadening out. Start- I'm wondering whether you know whether by making my message more specific, that then kind of leads me to kind of actions. Because they've become kind of specific enough to do something. <laughs> well, we're going to get onto enemies at some point. <laughs> and that's always very specific. You know, the person who's done you wrong in some way or you perceive them having done you wrong. You know, and then obviously it's very specific because you know, I think most of us probably don't have that many people we consider to be enemies, I hope. <laughs> Um, but we can certainly identify a number, a few number of people, perhaps, who we say you know, are, you know, have done us wrong in the past, for example, and identify them. So that becomes very specific in that case, and hopefully that might lead to good action towards them, you know, or at least good feelings, if not action, towards those people. So I think it's, it's both. It's a mixture of the broad and the specific meta-meditation. Ultimately, of course, it's this expansiveness of it that's important. Uh, and the equalisation of it, in the sense of coming to equanimity as well, in, in the practice of metta. But that kind of, let's stick with the, the, the little things <laughs> along the way at this stage. Any other? Yeah? I wanted to ask about um, the difficulty of the household life as opposed to the monastic life. Yeah. Because you said that in modern times we live in a much more yeah. Well, I mean, one has to bear in mind at the time that Buddhism originated in India, it was pretty hard life as it is still these days. You know, for the average person, I'm not talking about in the cities, but it's the ag- average person who's living in the countryside in India, it's pretty hard life. You know, trying to grow enough to eat or working for somebody to earn enough money to eat, and that occupies most of people's times. And interestingly enough, the Buddha says one of the chief conditions for beginning to practice, in a sense, practice meditation and all the other disciplines, is leisure. And in a way, what the monastic situation creates is an ideal leisure situation. I mean, it sounds peculiar, doesn't it, to put it in those terms, but in a way it does, because it frees up a lot of time, particularly, say, in the more 
stricter forms like Theravada Buddhism, where you can't, you, know, you can't do a lot of the menial things. You can't grow your food, you can't cook your food, you can't do a whole range of things. You can't buy and sell and all that stuff. And so, in a way, a lot of those kind of stuff that absorbs and consumes us in our daily life are taken away in the monastic situation. Um, but, as a proviso, I'd say in the 21st century, we do actually have a lot of leisure. You know, we do actually have more time than, say, the average person in India. So, the practice of Buddhist meditation, the practice, which isn't just, you know, Buddhism isn't just a practice of meditation, that's one strategy in a whole aspect of, of Buddhist thought and practice. Um, we get the opportunity to do that. We get the opportunity to read the text. We get the opportunity to come on things like this, you know, on a nine-day retreat, which, you know, to the average person in India is completely beyond their means and also their time constraints as well. We get the opportunities to do this. So what the Buddha speaks about becomes a very real possibility for the lay person in the West, I think. In fact, often I've seen teachers, in the, particularly Tibetan teachers, who are very close to in, in my original training, who came to the West and say, good heavens, you're not studying that. You don't do that until the 12th year of your study or something. You know, because they're saying that you, you're, kind of, you're doing the monastic thing, but in a non-monastic environment. So you'll get people reading about emptiness, you know, which is you know, a three-and-a-half-year study course in the monastery where I stayed in, just on its own. Um, and you'll get people reading about X and Y and Z and, and trying to practice them, where you wouldn't get that in these traditional environments. So lay practice, although it is difficult in the West, I don't hesitate to say that, I think it is difficult. We have lots of pushes and pulls and strains on our times uh, within the West. It's far more possible than it was in the traditional cultures that the Buddha spoke about. And even in the traditional cultures, the Buddha said it was possible to do it. A lot more difficult, you know, but possible. But in our societies, I think it's very real. It depends, I think, um, and I think I said this last night, it depends on how valuable you think what you're doing is. Because if you think it's really, really valuable, you'll devote as much time as you possibly can to being involved. And that might mean giving up other things in order to create the space to do that. And only you, you know, each one of you in this room know what your own individual situations are and whether you know, it is that really important to you to, to engage in these practices. Personally, I would say that engaging in these practices, I can't think of anything more exciting, anything that opens up the world into a vast, dynamic, exciting place to be than the kind of practices that we're doing just a very possibility of a different way of being in this world rather than the miserable condition we often find ourselves in. Alone, I think, is enough impetus, uh, personally for me, to keep practicing, to keep doing it, um, and to keep exploring and to keep, keep inquiring. But only you know individually you know, for yourselves how important that is to you. But if you do have that, then you will create the time and the space and the energy and put in the necessary commitment to doing it. And then, then it becomes really possible. <laughs>